Thank you. Okay, the fast summary. Do you remember what these letters stand for? This is the big picture of the Bible, right? Creation, then what happened? Fall. Everything went bad. Then what's this period? Creation, fall, are Redemption. And then the final, the glory of all things, is the consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, which is saying that the Bible, in the history that it's recording for us, is written during this period of redemption, and therefore is explaining how God is doing, how, doing His work on our behalf. And uh, we can make it complicated, and I recognize when we talk about all those predictive, preparatory, resultant, reflective things that you think, oh my goodness, I just got to preach this week, <laughs> and how do I do all this? But the simplest way is, is just to put on our gospel glasses, right? And the gospel glasses that help us see the grace of God that's unfolding in all the Scripture, we don't have to overcomplicate it. It's really just looking at the text with our gospel glasses on, and each lens is really a very basic question. First, we ask, what does this text tell me about the nature of God? Remember the second question? What does this text tell me about the nature of humanity or me? If we will just put on our gospel glasses and we say, what is this text telling me about the nature of God? What is this text telling me about the nature of me, myself? I'm going to understand I need a little help here. And God has promised it from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, those of you with the seminary background, what do we call Genesis 3.15? The proto, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Look how early it is in the Bible where God is saying, here's what I'm going to do, and the rest of the story unfolds. Now, what I've done so far is just kind of said, grace is unfolding in all the Bible, culminating in Christ. And, and we can have lots of discussions and debates about how do we best reveal that. But for the rest of our time, I don't want to just talk about what is being revealed, but why. Why is the grace of God being revealed in all the Scriptures? And for me, one of the best ways of thinking about that is to remember one of the most revolutionary artworks of all time. This was a painting painted by Michelangelo Caravaggio, and it's called The Supper at Emmaus. Now, already we talked about the road to Emmaus, remember? The risen Jesus appears to his disciples. They don't recognize him. But what does Luke tell us? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus revealed what was said in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But still the disciples don't get it. So they go on to the town of Emmaus. And they have dinner together. And at that supper, Jesus does something that is so incredibly Christ-like that when he does it, they say, it's Jesus. What does Jesus do that makes them recognize him? What does he do? He breaks the bread. And in the breaking of the bread, they recognize this is Jesus. This is the Messiah, long promised. And it's that, it's that moment like, like the flash of a camera capturing an image that, that Caravaggio captures as the disciples are recognizing this is Jesus. 
But one of the reasons this painting is so revolutionary is it doesn't kind of show Jesus and his disciples the way it was expected. Neither Jesus nor his disciples have halos. They're just dressed like regular people. And actually, they are clean-shaven, which means in that day and age that they're just ordinary servants, right? So they can wash off the sawdust or the fish guts, right? And they're not dressed like noblemen. But it's even more than that. As they are recognizing this is Jesus, they're not kind of sitting back and glassy-eyed wondering, oh, it's Jesus. Instead, they are rising from their seats. Their muscles are taut. One actually tries to reach toward you as the onlooker and pull you into contact with Jesus. Because what they are witnessing is this. If this is Jesus... If this is the fulfillment of the ages, is this the long-prophesied Messiah? Is this the one who's been sent to save? If that is who we now see, then we have to do something about this. We have to respond to this. And that is why, ultimately, we are proclaiming the grace of all the Scripture. It's not just so that we'll get the interpretation right and be better than the people who get it wrong. Ultimately, we are recognizing the pastoral power of the grace of God when we are saying, here is what God long promised, a provision for sinful people to rescue them, and now we have to do something about that. What do we do? Because we all fear, all of us, if you talk too much about grace, people will take advantage of it. They won't feel any obligation for obedience They will just hear grace from you. Now listen, that is a danger. But we need to talk about what happens in the human heart when grace is rightly understood in all the scriptures. Why, I'm now on your notes, why do we preach a Christ-centered approach to scripture? Roman numeral three. What is the purpose of Christ-centered exposition? Why do we bother to expound grace from all of scripture and not just tell people what to do Or what better doctrine to have? The reason that we expound grace from all of Scripture is, A, too many people confuse their who and their do. They confuse their justification with their sanctification. If you ask people, are you okay with God? Even in the church... That starts an internal conversation for most people. Am I okay with God? Well, I don't know. How am I doing? What did you just do? You said your relationship with God was based upon what you do. But let me remind you of something. Your best works are only what to God? Filthy rags. The question ultimately is not, your relationship with God is based upon what you do, but faith in what He has done. It is confidence in Him. I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives where? In me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My faith is not in what I do. I'm as good as dead in the counsels of God. That's not counting. Dead people don't get good report cards, right? Dead people don't get credit. Rather, our faith is in the provision of God. 
And that begins to change what we understand about how we preach the behavior that we know the passages of the Bible are teaching. When people confuse their who and they do, they think who I am is based upon what I do. The gospel is the opposite. What we do is based on who we are. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God. Piece of cake. Go ahead, do it. As dearly loved children. Here's the imperative. Be imitators of God. Be holy as God is holy. But then what does he said? As those who are dearly loved children. The imperative is based on the indicative. What we do is based on who we are. The human reflex is entirely different in which we say, I do something to get something, right? I do something so I get my wages. I do something so that you will love me. I do something so that you will respect me. I do something so that God will be satisfied with me. But if my best works are filthy rags, what's my problem? I got nothing to satisfy God. God, are you happy with me yet? Well, how about some filthy rags? Not enough? Well, how about some more filthy rags? No, listen, our standing with God is not based upon what we do, but faith in what Christ has done. Every other religion in the world, we would say, bases one's relationship with God upon human performance or competence, right? You either do better or you reach some state of consciousness. But we say Christianity is the only religion in the world that says we cannot reach up to God, and so what does he do? He reaches to us. And as a consequence, we live in loving obedience to what He's required. We're not saying commands don't count. We are saying they are a result of the grace of God. They are not the way we purchase the grace of God. Okay? We are responding always. And the theological way of saying that, it's in your notes there. This is from a famous theologian named Herman Ritterboss. He says this, what we do does not determine who we are. You see that blank to fill in? What we do does not determine who we are. Who we are determines what we do. Faithful exposition, item B, shows the imperative, what we are to do, rests on the indicative, who we are, and the order is not reversible. Why do we talk about the grace of God in all the Scripture? Because people inevitably think it's the human instinct that what my flesh does is what's going to make me okay with God. That's the human instinct. That's what every other religion teaches. And if all we do is in a sermon say, you just be good. If all we do in a sermon is say, you just be like this good person that I've cleaned up in their story in the Bible. Or you just be more disciplined than you were last week. Who is your redeemer? You are. By your action and your performance. But the Bible is not saying your performance is irrelevant. It is saying it is a response to grace. And if it's anything else, it's actually abhorrent to God. Well, I was doing a good thing. No, you were giving filthy rags to God. If, if what you were doing was trying to bribe him, to buy him off, 
to make yourself acceptable by your goodness, then you're actually saying the blood of Christ was unnecessary. What we do is we say, look how great is the grace of God. Now we respond to it. The imperatives, the commands, rest on the indicatives, and the order is not reversible. Now you think, well, that is not always true in the Bible. I mean, just think of the Ten Commandments. I mean, you know, you're to have no other gods, don't make graven images, honor your father and mother. I mean, they're just commands that are given. Actually, there is something said before the commands. Do you remember what it was? Before God gave the commands to His people, what's the prologue to the Ten Commandments? What does God say first? I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, therefore follow my commands. Now, you must hear the order. He did not say, you obey my commands, and then I'll let you out of Egypt. What did he say? I have redeemed you. You are out of slavery because you're so good and powerful and wonderful a people. Is that what God said? You're the best people in the world. That's why I saved you. What did he say? Why did he save Israel? They are the most stiff-necked and awful people. If I can save them, I can save anybody. It's not their deserving. And so God says to them, I have redeemed you. Therefore, follow me. The imperatives rest on the indicative. You are a redeemed people. Therefore, follow. Now, I know you because, no, okay, I got it. The imperative rests on the. Listen, it will change every relationship in your life if you become gospel centered, not just in your preaching and teaching, but in the way we relate to our own family. I've already said to you there was a time in, in my life when I could have answered the theology exam questions just fine. I was commended for my preaching. But what was in my heart was not the gospel. And what was often reflected in my family relationships. So I would say things like this to my my son. I would say, Colin, you're a bad boy because you did that. Now, it's very easy to say. It's very common to say. But theologically, what did I just say? You did a bad thing. And as a consequence, you are what? A bad boy. In which case, who he is is based upon what? What he did. The gospel is the opposite. You may think it's silly, but Kathy and I, coming into an understanding of the gospel of grace and how it affects everything, began to put ourselves under a discipline speaking to our own children. And I had to learn to say to my son, Colin, don't do that. You're my son. And I love you. I want who you are and who we are not to be based upon what you do. I want what you do to be based on who we are that precedes your performance. Because that's the gospel. That's the gospel lived out. It's not just the way we relate to our children. It's the way we relate to our spouses if we are gospel-centered. Now, I'm, I'm a North American male of a certain vintage where my heroes are either John Wayne or Harrison Ford. You know, the great unmoved movers. You know, I can take anything. And I need that at times because, you know, when there's tension between Kathy and me, you know, I have a couple of choices. I mean, one choice is that I can get really mad, you know, and, but I can't do that because I'm a pastor. And, but my other choice is the John Wayne approach. 
I can get really quiet. She'll figure out what she did. <laughs> In which case, I am treating her according to her actions rather than according to our relationship. The Bible says that we are heirs together of the grace of life. We are in a covenant relationship with God and in a covenant relationship with one another that is not based upon performance, but a prior obligation to love because that was the gospel by which Christ claimed us and it's the gospel by which we live. And so are there things to work through? Yes, there are things to work through. But with honor of the dignity and respect and love that is between us, because that is the gospel. We don't base our relationship on what we do. We base what we do on the relationship that we have. That is the gospel. It affects how we deal with things in the church. I've been a pastor long enough that I know if somebody's upset with me and they're firing away at me, what's my response? If they're firing at me, what do I do? I fire back or I undermine them so people won't listen to them. I treat them according to their actions. But what if, what if I believe that that is a person for whom Jesus died? That if I believe they're actually a believer, that Christ indwells them. That behind the eyes that are shooting fire at me, Jesus dwells. Then I treat that person as a brother in Christ even if my flesh conflicts with it entirely. The relationship trumps the action because that is the gospel. The reason that we show the grace of God unfolding in all the Scriptures for people who do not deserve it, God providing for people who cannot provide themselves, is it becomes the way in which God is instructing us not merely to preach, but the way to love and the way to live and the way to teach the gospel to others. That ultimately what we are doing is we are trying to help people understand, yes, who you are is not based upon what you do, but by the grace of God, what you do is a response to the love that He has shown you. And that... That is what begins to change the Christian life. Didn't always understand that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do you remember some of you? I beseech you therefore... I did this in the King James, by the way, because I remember I was in the King James. I beseech you there... We did lots of beseeching in the King James days. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. See, I memorized that as a kid, so I can just kind of roll it off. And I said it correctly. But even though I said it correctly, I must tell you, it's not what my heart heard. Here's what my heart heard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then you'll be holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. Is that what it says? No. But isn't that what we hear? You be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Listen, the word holy should have been a clue. Is what you do going to make you acceptable to God? No. Holy and acceptable are not a statement of what you will become. 
They are a declaration of what you are. You are holy and acceptable to God. How could I be holy and acceptable to God? I sin, I fail, I have faults. How could I be holy? How did the verse begin? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, Paul is right there at the pivot point in the book of Romans where all the imperatives are going to start. Here's your civil responsibilities. Here's your moral responsibilities. Here's your individual responsibilities. Here's your corporate response. Here's all you're supposed to be. But what does he do before he says any of those responses? He says, remember who you are. You are holy and acceptable to God. Not based upon these responsibilities. Based upon what God has done in Christ. He just spent 11 chapters saying what God has done in Christ. And now he says, on the basis of this mercy... He doesn't say imperatives don't matter anymore. He said, no, the imperatives now are all based on how great is God's mercy to you. He's, he's not after, if you will, kind of a logic that will say, well, you know, they'll take advantage of grace if you talk about two. He said, no, 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 listen. He is after the heart of God's people. Jesus told us the response of people who profoundly love him. What did he say, John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commands. We're not just talking about the fault of logic. We are talking about what the human heart does with a deep and profound understanding of the gospel. When I understand how great is his love for me, I want to love him back. I mean, ultimately, we recognize item B there under Roman numeral three. Faithful exposition shows that the imperative rests on the indicative and the order is not reversible. And that's the way the scriptures are always talking. The Ten Commandments, the law... I brought you out of Egypt before I ever gave you the first command. I love you. You are mine. That's who you are. Therefore, follow me. How do all the epistles unfold, including Romans that I just said to you? How do they, what, what's the first half of the epistles, whether they're Johannine or Pauline? What's the first half of the epistle about? What God has done in Christ. What's the second half of the epistle about? How you respond. The imperatives are built on the indicatives, and the order is not reversible. And so what we begin to understand, back to some of these categories before, I, I, I'm not saying tell people to be bad, but I am saying if the entire message is be good, we have forgotten the indicatives, right? The reality is you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and God has sent him for you. And, and that indicative, that reality, you are a child of God. You are one who has been provided for the, by the blood of the Lamb. You have been purchased, redeemed. You're a new creation. All that is true before the imperative is ever given. And to give the imperatives, here's the imperative. What do people assume? Well, I better do those things so that I will be loved, purchased, gained. No. You're already those things. And you're living in response to grace. Now, I, I recognize, and you do too, that, that, that there's this fear that when we talk about grace too much, that, that people will take advantage of it. Now, the Apostle Paul never had that problem. No, he really had that problem. Remember the dangerous thing the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5? That where sin abounds, what did he say? Grace abounds all the more. What, Paul? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Well, should we just continue in sin that grace may abound? How does Paul answer his critics? What does he say? May it never be. 
If you have been released from slavery, why would you want to go back there? It's what we are teaching God's people. You have been released from slavery to sin. Now that you know you've been released from the emptiness, from the guilt, from the shame, from the hurt, why would you want to go back there? Instead, why would you not be drawn into the promised land? Why would you not want to live in the goodness and the fullness of the grace of God? Ultimately, Paul says these strange things to us. He will say things in Titus 2 like, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, that just doesn't make sense. The grace of God means he'll forgive you. So, sin city, here I come. No, that's not how the heart functions. The grace of God, fully revealed, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. I love Jesus. I want to walk with him. I want to be with him. It's ultimately the compulsion of the Christian life. What did Paul say compels him to the ministry of reconciliation that he was willing to suffer for Jesus? What compelled him? The what of God compels me? The love of God compels me to live in these ways for him. Ultimately, I want to understand the power of the grace of the gospel, why it's so necessary that we discern it in all of scriptures by having you think deeply about what you believe actually empowers people to live the Christian life. I mean, if, if there's just a part of you that says, now, if people are going to live, all we just got to do is tell them to be better and better and better and better. If that's your philosophy, you're not going to like this. But we all need something different. By thinking realistically and biblically about the source of power to live the Christian life. What enables us to live for Christ? I'm back on your notes. So the first blank to fill in there, item A is, knowledge is power. One of the things that we have to do if we're going to teach people in a Sunday school class, in a sermon, in a counseling session, how do you obey God? Well, they have to know what He requires, right? So they have to know what, what I call the D and the D, is the duty and doctrine, We're not getting away from that. I mean, just think, you know, if if the pastor says, you know, you have to obey God. You be holy because God is holy. You should obey His commands. What's your first question? Well, what are His commands? Now, what if the preacher said, uh, 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 the question is, what are His commands? Well, I'm not going to tell you. No, pastor, really, what what does He command? Well, I'm not going to tell you. No, listen, we all know that in order to be able to obey God, you have to know what He requires. Now, think of how the Scriptures actually explain that. You know Micah 6 8. What does God require of you? But to act justly, the same word is righteously, you are to act righteously. You are to be as righteous, first requirement of God, you be holy as God is holy, all right? So the first requirement, act justly. But if you understand what that means is you are to be holy, brother, you better love some mercy. So what does God also require of you after act justly? What does he require? That you love mercy. And the third thing, that you walk humbly with your God. Who's responsible for your salvation? Who's responsible for your pardon? Who gets you in a relationship with God? Who maintains your relationship with God? Not you. God. 
Do you see how the gospel is actually unfolding in Micah? What does God require of you? That you actually be righteous. So you begin to understand you need some mercy and you better love it. And that will cause you to walk humbly with your God. What is God requiring? I have to know what's the duty and what's the doctrine. What is, what is true about God? What does God call me to do? I, I can't obey God if I don't know those things. So uh, teaching about the grace of God does not mean we don't teach the law of God or we don't teach the doctrine. We're not, never saying that. These are necessary things to know or people cannot obey God. So they need to know what He requires. What else do people know, need to know, in order to be able to obey God? They need to know who they are. Now, I'm going to start in a way that may seem a little bit silly, but I have a purpose. What's the first thing that everyone needs to know about themselves in order to be able to obey God? The first thing that you must know about yourself is that you're human. Irretrievably irrevocably human. What does that mean? There is no temptation taken you, but such as is what? Common. Now, I must tell you that when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager and my hormones were racing, I liked that verse. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common. Oh, goodness, I'm glad somebody else is suffering this way. That's not what that verse means. That what I'm wrestling with, someone out there also is wrestling with. That's not what that verse means. There's no temptation taking you but such as is common. There's nothing going on out there. The seeds of which are not already in here. How do I know that? James said if you have broken one commandment, how many of you actually broken? All of them. There is nothing going on out there. There's nothing other people are guilty of the seeds of which are not already in my own heart. I must know that I am human, so I am not my Redeemer. I cannot make myself right with God. There's no temptation that people have experienced that is not common to us. That is who we are. We are human. Now, because we are human, we can also be helped by practical advice. That's just true, right? Because we're human, there there are things that help us. Some of you are spiritual leaders, and you've had conversations that I've had with people that we don't like having, but it's just because they're human, it helps them. I may say to a young man, now you listen to me. When you get off work today, don't you dare take that road home. Because if you take that road home, you're going to stop by that place or that person, and you're going to be in trouble. So while you've got a little resolve, you go another way home. Now, it may sound very legalistic. It's just Proverbs 4. Do not put your foot on the path of the wicked. Do not go near the path of the wicked. Instead, turn and go the other direction. That's just practical advice. And it works because we're human. It is absolutely necessary in our preaching to tell people what to do and give the practical advice that human people are helped with. Absolutely necessary. And insufficient. What else must you know about yourself? You're not just human. You must know that. But what else must believers know about themselves? They must know 
that they are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. You, if you are a believer, are loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? Loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the Apostle Paul tooks all that together, puts it together in 2 Corinthians 5, what does he say? Therefore, in Christ you are a new creation. And in the church we go, yay, I'm a new creation. And yet even in the church we go, I'm a new creation. I... Still looks like me. Still struggles like me. Still weighs about the same. How am I a new creation? What does it mean to actually understand you are made new? Now, for those of you who had the seminary classes long ago, remember the fundamental difference between being regenerate and unregenerate. Okay? What was the nature of someone who is unregenerate? They were not able not to sin. That is the definition of what it means not to be loved by the Father, united to Christ. And you are not able not to sin. That's the old nature. That's being unregenerate. That's not being dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are not able. Not, I'm not saying you murdered somebody every day. I'm saying absolutely nothing you did was for the glory of God. Not a single thing. You were not able not to sin. That was your old nature. But if you are loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what is your new nature? What does it mean to be a new creation? You were once not able not to sin. Who are you now? Able not to sin. We're not talking perfection. We are talking about the reality. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan will sit right there on your shoulder and he will say, you can't be helped, you can't be fixed, nothing will help you, you can't turn, you can't change, tomorrow will be like yesterday, and change is impossible. And how do we respond? Satan, that is a lie. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I have been made new. I am no longer a slave Romans 6, 6, and 14, sin shall no longer have dominion over me. I believe profoundly the gospel that while Satan in my own soul will say, you, don't, you have no hope, you cannot be fixed, that Jesus says, I make you new. I have loved you, redeemed you, not by your work, but by my work. And you have power, and you must believe that. Because if you do not believe you can have victory, you've already lost the battle. And so we, we believe the gospel. You are a new creation. You are not only human. You are redeemed. And because you are redeemed, you have power like you never had prior to the Holy Spirit indwelling you. I mean, it's just glorious what the apostle says in Romans 6. We have trouble believing it. And, and yet we sing the songs about it. <laughs> we are no longer slaves. I love singing that these days. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. But it's, it's there so powerfully stated so that we will believe it. It's part of our power to believe the gospel is true and that hope is real. 
But as real as is that hope, as wondrous as is the truth that I have been made new, that I'm no longer a slave, it sets up a terrible question. If you are no longer a slave, if sin no longer has dominion over you, then why do you still sin? And the biblical answer that we hate is we sin because we love it. Let no man say when he's tempted that he is tempted of God. God cannot be tempted and he tempts no man. But we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lusts and desires. The sin does not have power to overcome us. We give it power by loving it. We lick the hurt so often that we delight in the poison that wants to take vengeance on another person. We actually long for the bitterness to be fulfilled. The lust, we've already been told, springs in us, and we want to fulfill the lust. Now, we have to be honest here to say it, 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 the human heart is, is an awful thing, and sometimes our affections are so disordered. Let me say this right. We love the things we hate. I hate being tempted in this way. I hate this lust. I hate this failure. But the thing that draws me back to it is what? My affections for it still. In some way it's satisfied. That's what draws me back to it. So my next question, which is a much better question. If, if what gives sin power in our lives is our love for the sin, what will displace love for sin? You're saying it. Love for the Savior. Now, friends, I know it's getting late, but I want you to make clear, why do we preach the grace of God in all the Scripture? Because we recognize that ultimately the power of the Christian life is not just knowledge of what to do or who you are. It is such love for Christ that we act upon the power that we already have. We displace the love of sin with the love of the Savior. Some of you may know that famous sermon by Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. It's really a better title than it was a sermon, but it's, it's a wonderful title because it's expressing so well how the gospel works. When I love Jesus, what did he say? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll want to walk with me. You'll, you, you, you'll want to serve me. You, you, you'll want to live life with me because of how great is my love for you. And, and when we begin to perceive, because we're preaching it so regularly, teaching it in Sunday school, right? How, how profound is God's love for sinful creatures. How resolute, how unrelenting, how as the dawn grows, as the light grows greater toward the dawn has been the grace of God more fully revealed until it comes to culmination in Christ. And we see he did that for people like Israel and people like Thomas and people like me. That the love of Christ compels me. I don't mean to be sappy or silly, but I want you to know it's because there is no more powerful human motivation than love. 
Guilt is not more powerful. Fear is not more powerful. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. I am not saying there are not other motivations, but I'm saying this is the most powerful motivation. And if I believe that, then somehow I have to generate in my preaching this love for God that is ultimately filling up people with the resolve, the desire to do the things that please God. I mean, our own human relationships should begin to teach us how this works. If, if our hearts are filled with love, how we will want to walk with that one. When I began pastoring, I was single. And uh, I was uh, uh, still in seminary, hadn't gone to the big church yet, teaching at a little bitty country church that I would travel to on weekends. And uh, one Sunday after the sermon, a family in the church said, would you like to go on a picnic with our family? Now, I was single and food was being offered, so what do you think I said? <laughs> I said, you bet. And, uh, and we drove in that part of the country up along the Mississippi River, what's called the Great River Road, where the, the white limestone cliffs on one side, immense forests going on both sides of the river. It was the fall of the year. So the sky was blue, the sun was shining, the leaves were gold and red. You don't know this in the desert, but nonetheless, it was beautiful. <laughs> and we had this picnic in this wonderful Victorian village. And at the end of the picnic, the, uh, the 20-something-year-old daughter of my elder uh, said to me, would you like to take a walk with me? Now the sun was shining. And the sky was blue. And she had blonde hair and green eyes. And she said, would you like to take a walk with me? What did I say? I said, you bet. <laughs> and I've been walking with her for over 45 years now. <laughs> She's beautiful. Why wouldn't I want to walk with her? Why do we disclose the grace of God in all the scriptures? So we'll get the interpretation right. Yeah, I know. But ultimately, we will understand how great is his love for us. And the beauty of the Savior makes us want to walk with him, to delight to walk with him. And it changes us as we now change our want to, right? Our desires change. Our affections change. That's Romans 8. We have new desires. doesn't mean that we're made perfect all of a sudden. But we have an overcoming love for God that actually changes us. Item B. It's not just that knowledge is power. Item B. Love is power. The primary reason the redeemed sin is that they love the sin. How do we overcome love for sin? A greater love. What is the source of that love? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If you really want to generate that love that is so powerful, then we explain how great is his love for us. We teach the imperatives, but not without the indicatives. And we remember that the imperatives are always based on the indicatives. What is the effect of such love? A, holiness. If we love him above all other loves, holiness is the result. We will love to walk with him. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will want 
to obey, you will obey my commands. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. and just, just take it so simply as this. What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, what? What is the foundation of all commands? You shall, what is the greatest command? What moves us to love the neighbor who doesn't deserve it? Love for God. I'm not just being schmaltzy or silly or not willing to talk about the hard things in Scripture. I'm just willing to say, what is the fundamental biblical command? It is love for God. And the way that we generate that love is by saying how great is His love for us. And by the way, it doesn't just mean it changes our relationship with Him, but with others. What's the effect of love? Not just item A, holiness, but B, service. If you love Christ above all other loves, you will love what and whom He loves. And whom does Jesus love? (laughs) He loves the unlovely. And the widow, and the orphan, and the refugee, and the people who sinned against your family. Why would I love them? Because Jesus does. And if I love him above all of the things, I will love what and whom he loves. It's the basis of all missions and ethics. Love for God is driving all the other loves that are the basis of mission and ethics in the Christian life. We're getting close to the end. How do we build such love? If it is so pivotal that that love be the driving motivation behind our obedience, how do we build that love? The simple biblical answer is through the means of grace. Now, what are the means of grace? Usually we talk about prayer, reading of Scripture, communion of God's people, sacraments, or the corporate body of worship, depending on your tradition. We have different, it's the means of grace. But here's the problem in the church, where we're so prone to the performance reflex. We say the way that we build love is by the means of grace. And what our people hear is the way you build love is by the means to grace. How do you get some of that grace stuff? Well, you pray. And if you need some more, what do you do? Pray some more. And you go to church more than the other people. Not all the time. Nobody expects that. And we take the means of grace and we turn them into bribes. Here's how I'm going to get God to love me, take care of me, be kind to me. I am going to bribe him to be nice. I'll do this awful thing. I'll get up in the morning and read the Bible. Or I'll, I'll pray. I'll go to church twice. And we are trying to bribe God to be nice to us with the means of grace. It's the human instinct, right? And I'm talking to spiritual leaders, and it's not just other people. You know how we work, right? I had a fight with my wife. Okay, God, I'll put more in the offering plate this week, right? I, you know, I, 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 I went to the internet place I shouldn't go, and all right, you know, I'll, I'll pray for an hour this week. And we're trying to buy off God. We pay off the ogre in the sky so that he won't hurt us. 
Listen, the means of grace are not bribes. They are bread. They are the nutrients of the Christian life. I study the scriptures and I see how great is his love for me. I pray, why? Because I don't even know how to pray. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for me with groans too deep to utter. I'm falling asleep in my own prayers. And the Holy Spirit is before the throne of God saying, God, hear him. He needs your help. His family needs your help. And God, who knows the mind of the Spirit, intercedes in accord with his will so that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We take the Christian two-by-four, Romans 8, 28, right? Well, you're struggling, you're weeping, you're crying. Well, all things work, you know, kind of like, oh, well, that really helped me. Thank you. <laughs> we forget it's a verse that's attached to prayer where an apostle says, we don't know how to pray. And so God sends the Spirit to pray with greater fervor than I could offer and, and greater design than I could ever imagine so that what actually happens now is the universe is bending to my good so that all things are working together for good. I mean, that's better than a pony or a bicycle. And it's happening when we pray. Why wouldn't I pray? I'm not trying to buy off God. I'm partaking of the beauty of the privilege of the grace of prayer. And when I perceive it as bread, that I can be with God's people when I need encouragement and strength and help for my family. When you get to be a parent and your kids are teenagers, so they don't listen to you anymore. But, but the people in the church, they still listen to. When, when there are opportunities for people to help who are the grandparents that your kids don't have, when there's the opportunity that you become the grandparents that other people need, you begin to see in this body of Christ, there is the wonder of the love of Christ among terrible, awful people who've received His grace and so they're able actually to be the body of Christ to one another and to you. And you're saying, I'm not going to church to buy off God. I'm partaking of the beauty of the grace He gives. I have a son who's a marathon runner. I mean, a super marathon. He doesn't run 25, 26. He's, he goes 50 milers, you know. And, but I'll tell you, I don't care what kind of shape you're in. You get to about mile 20 and you're going to open your mouth. Now listen, when he opens his mouth, he doesn't say, I need to manufacture some oxygen. He says, I'm going to take in some oxygen. It's all there. And when we pray, and, and, and when we read the scriptures, and, and when we go to church, we are not manufacturing the grace of God. We are receiving. We are the vessels that take it in. And it strengthens us and gives us hope and makes us want to walk with him. You know, my family is um, children of kind of two stages. We have what we call the big kids, and then we have our Mac baby. Anybody know what a Mac baby is? Middle-aged crazy. A <laughs> lot younger than the other kids. So as she got into her late teens, I would sometimes say to my wife, man, I just can't keep up with this gal. I mean, she is so active and, and doing so much, and, and, you know, I'm just getting old. <laughs> and, and I can't, and my wife, so dear and wise, she would say, listen, the way we poured ourselves into the big kids, we got to keep pouring into this kid. And so then I will tell you, no matter, no matter what time of day it was, because my job has always involved a lot of travel, as busy as she got, 
I would always get up in the mornings and I would fix her breakfast. Now, it was just cereal, but I called it breakfast. <laughs> and I would think to myself as I'm filling up her cereal bowl with milk, I'm thinking, what, what is my obligation as the Christian father of this young Christian woman? And I think, just, just as I'm filling up her cereal bowl with milk, I'm to be filling up her heart with love for Jesus. Why? Because as a teenager, you and I know there are trials and there are temptations ahead. But if her heart is full of love for Christ, she cannot be more safe or more strong. And that is not just true of my child. That is true of every child of God. If their hearts are full of love for Christ, they cannot be more safe or more strong. Grace is not license, it is power. As we recognize what God is doing is he is filling up the hearts of his people with love for him that actually empowers their walk with him because it changes their desires and with the ability they have as children of God, they now begin to pursue it. I must tell you, there was a time, pastors, that I believed that the job of a pastor was to get people to do what they don't want to do. And I will tell you, that is a horrible job. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that my job is to enable God's people to love Him more. Week by week, month by month, year by year, to grow in their understanding of how great is His love for them. Because what will happen then? The joy of the Lord will become their strength. Oh, you Christian teachers, leaders, preachers, what a wonderful job we have to fill up God's people with love for Jesus. That is a great job, and I commend it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I thank you for those who gather here because their very being here says that they want to serve you and they want your children to love you. They want your children to avoid the paths that lead to destruction and hurt and emptiness. And all of us struggle at times to know, how do we balance all this? How do we tell them what's right? And still at the same time, know how great is your love for them. So teach us to see the grace of God that's unfolding in all the scriptures so that we only teach what you have said. That the imperatives will rest on the indicatives and the order will not be reversed by us. But rather we will teach how great is the love that compels a heart to follow Christ. So work in our hearts that our messages might be that of the Savior and that our people would know the joy that is their strength. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These questions. Which way? All right, thank you. Yeah. We'll let you sit. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. Um, it has been... Good for my soul to have you out here. And uh, as sitting here, you know, these were things that 
uh, I remember these lectures my first semester of seminary and uh, could fill in the blanks, but hearing them again um, after now being in ministry for many years is manna for my soul. Um, not just as a pastor, but as a parent and uh, as a husband. So thank you for these reminders. And we're, we're going we're gonna to try to work through and, and apply some of this. Um, I, actually, I've got a number of questions here, uh, all relating to uh, the, the, our context here on the border, uh, which is a, it's a heavily Roman Catholic context. Um, uh, several questions, just asking you to, to flush this out and to, and to fill this out into a Roman Catholic context. Um, I'll read a portion of one question uh, more as a testimony than a question. One person wrote, in Hispanic Mexican culture, when a child does something bad or naughty, the parent, usually the mother, tells you that you are malcriado, which translates to poorly created or poorly brought up. I eventually agreed with my mother and would retort, yes. I used that logic as a cornerstone of my own identity and struggled with it for a long time. Um, yeah, so it just uh, would ask you to kind of uh, maybe flesh these things out as, as into a predominantly Roman Catholic uh, context, uh, Mexican, Hispanic, borderland community. The, the you're a bad child, whatever, badly created, badly raised, is not just a Roman Catholic expression. It's the human instinct. Mm -hmm. And it's, the, if you will, it, for people who have not deeply been affected by the gospel, it's, it's the parenting reflex, right? Because I, I'm trying to correct, I actually want to shield a child from greater harm by uh, making them feel so bad right now that they'll turn to a better path so they won't feel so bad in the future. But the recognition is not there that if I'm undermining a child's identity, I'm actually undermining their strength, their spiritual strength. And so to affirm their identity despite that, we, we want to tell people what you did uh, was against God. It, it hurt Jesus. And, you know, it, it's, it's something that, that makes God himself weep for, for that thing. But he loved you anyway, as I do. And the, the identity has to, to drive the imperatives or else the imperatives, I mean, listen, what, what we all struggle with is this. Even in the church, most people live, believe as legalists. God is good because I'm good enough. That's how most people live, right? So the way that I get God to be good is I'm good enough. And now we... we believe that because that is the human reflex, that God is bound by the actions of my flesh. So if I'm really, really good, he's obligated to be really, really nice. And if I'm really bad, he, he's obligated to make me pay. Um, but the trouble is God doesn't tell us to, just to be good. He tells us to be holy. And when we begin to perceive that, we, rec we end up doing this. We say, well, holy, well, Nobody's holy. I mean, I'm not perfect. And so what we do is we excuse our sin. And so what began as legalism 
I need to be good enough for God to be good, actually ends up being license. God God's really doesn't expect me to be perfect. And so we start changing the standard to whatever makes me acceptable to me. Now, how do preachers respond to that or priests or whatever? Well, we see people who are misbehaving. And so we begin to focus on do better, behave better. And what we do is we think, well, the preacher's only talking about being better. So I have to be better to be okay with God. And the preaching that is meant to correct licentiousness creates legalists. And what the gospel is doing is it's it's breaking into that and it's saying it's the mercy of God that is the motivation. The mercy that saved you that that knew your sin that knows you're wrong and still loves you. So that people's identity is based upon Christ acceptance, not their goodness. So Roman Catholic culture, you know, there are specific aspects of Roman Catholic theology. Some of you will know this. Even if you're Roman Catholic, you may or may not heard. What, what, what does Roman Catholic theology, traditional and historic, teach? That we are made right with God by the infusion of grace, right? So you think of a big syringe. I give you enough grace that you can now obey God. And if you obey well enough, then God will love you and take care of you and forgive you and take you to heaven. So he gives you the grace so that you do what you have to do. But if you don't do what you have to do, God's under no obligation. Protestants do not talk about infused grace, that you get enough grace so you can be good enough for God. Because we ultimately believe you can't be good enough for God. You will never do enough to be good enough for God. So we talk about imputed grace, right? The grace that is ours, the, the foreign, the alien righteousness of Christ that covers us, right? Isaiah 61, right? He has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has put his garment of righteousness upon me. So we are made right with God, not by grace that allows us to be good enough. We're made right with God by confessing I can't be good enough. But your grace has made me your own. And so I want to live in loving response to that. And the, the deepness is this. I, I, I want to I, I be careful because we can just stereotype these in ways that are not helpful. But so many people, if I believe that my performance, that I'm living out the infused grace, my performance is what makes me right with God, then what will drive me the most in Christian life is guilt. That's what will drive me the most. I need to stay on God's good side by doing enough good things. So guilt keeps me doing the things I should. A gospel perspective says it's not guilt. It's gratitude that is the driving force in the Christian life. It's thanksgiving for the love that is mine despite my inability to do all that should be done. And of course, the great debate is, which, is which is more powerful, guilt or gratitude? Which is more powerful? What did the Lord say is our strength? The what of the Lord is our strength? The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we would say it's, it's gratitude for imputed grace, not guilt for infused grace, that is the greater power and the greater joy. And when people get imputed righteousness, it is. It's a powerful thing. Powerful.
And let's say, it's what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. It's what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. and, and we remind, it's, by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we just say those words so readily, but it's the beauty of the gospel so that we're responding in gratitude, not just in guilt. Uh, another question here. Uh, w w one critique of Christ-centered preaching might be that the application to every sermon ends up sounding the same. Uh, trust Jesus more. Uh, and then question goes in two different directions. Um, how do we avoid, first, making trust in Jesus sound like one more work that we must do? Trust Jesus more. Trust Jesus more. And second, how can teachers and preachers faithfully vary their application? I'm going to start with the last because it leads to the others. I, I think often a Christ-centered approach, a gospel, and it goes by different names, gospel-centered, grace-centered, Christ-centered. You know, a gospel-centered approach is sometimes that, you know, every sermon's the same. God tells you to obey, you don't, but He loves you anyway. You know, it's all the same. And it's Actually, that's not what I teach, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you've heard it here. How, how can I preach gospel-centered, grace-oriented sermons that don't all sound the same? I look at the text, and I say, what is the human dilemma here? What is the fallen condition that's being dealt with? Is it doubt? Is it fear? Is it rebellion? Is it greed? What is the... Why did the Holy Spirit write this? What's the human condition that is being addressed? And if you will be specific, not just, well, the problem is sin. Well, I know, but I mean, what specific sin? You know, what, what's the problem that's being addressed in this passage? Then grace will become as multifaceted as the law. We usually don't hear people say, oh, every sermon is the same. Law. No, we say, well, no, there's so many laws. There's a lot of variety here, you know. But what if we said grace has much, as much variety as the law of God. That here is the human condition, its fallenness, its weakness, its failure, its fault, its rebellion. Let's identify what this, why did the Holy Spirit put this here? And then we say, what aspect of grace deals with that human condition? And now our sermons take on the rich variety that God intends. So that it's, it's like grace as a diamond with many facets. So if you will, grace is in every... Well, it's true. I do want grace to be in every sermon. But I want, I want the facets to keep addressing the specific issue that's being there. And, and what that does is, I'm not now generating my trust. You know, I need to trust God more, trust God more, trust... No, that's not really the point. I am, it, I am depending upon God more. If I'm depending upon my trust... You know, <laughs> Spurgeon used to say, you know, it's not, your, it's not the degree of your trust that makes God love you. <laughs> it's God's love that loves you, right? We depend upon Him, not the degree of our faith, not the degree of our trust. We, it's, it's more leaning than building, <laughs> right? So I'm leaning upon Christ. And what makes me do that is I say, how am I seeing God's provision for this human frailty? And so I'm not trusting God, I'm, I'm actually perceiving how great is God's grace in this additional dimension. So we keep showing God's people more and more dimensions of the grace of God 
And so they recognize how much more dependent they are upon it rather than turning it into a work. It can certainly be that. You know, I got to have more of this faith thing. Well, curiously, the Bible says the faith is a gift of God, right? Because we are, we are given it to lean upon Him entirely. Uh, they have another, a number of questions all kind of dealing with um, so you use the illustration of, uh, of the ark is made of wood, right? <laughs> uh, or Rahab's cord, and, and we, we could multiply those as examples. Um, so a number of questions all deal with kind of what, what are the controls that we have? Um, in fact, I think Spurgeon even has this, this, this illustration of, you know, he says he's going to plow through every shrub and jump over every wall in order to make, get his way to Christ. So how can we, in our preaching and teaching, make sure we want to have a redemptive focus, that we're doing it in ways that are exegetically faithful? Right. Um, so the simple answer, which can be hard week to week, is can you prove what you just said? Rahab's cord or cloth that she hung outside her window was red. And of course, this is the blood of Christ. Well, maybe it's just that she was a scarlet woman, which she was. Or maybe it's because they were saved through the Red Sea, which they were. No, I think we are bound to say, thus saith the Lord. I can prove that this is what this means, right? So why can't I say, I don't think I have any trouble proving what did God do? He saved Israel through a prostitute. Is there any grace there? I don't have any trouble saying God showed amazing grace toward her and toward Israel. I, I, don't, I don't have to kind of make that imaginative leap where usually what we do to be sure we're on firm footing, if there is an analogy to be made, we say, did an apostle or prophet make that analogy? Not you. D is it in the Bible? Christ is our Passover. There is an analogy, right? The writer of Hebrews makes it though, right? I didn't have to come up with that. So if the Bible says it, say it. But other than that, you got to prove it. The wood of the ark symbolizes the cross. Well, no, it symbolizes the wood in the temple. Well, no, it symbolizes the wood of Moses' ark. Well, no, it's, you know, I can make it mean anything. I, it's not, I want to make sure it's not based on your imagination. It's what all I can prove the text says. And I will grant you that, you know this, Christ-centered preaching. People assume that I'm going to try to be allegorical, that I'm going to try to find Jesus in every camel track and behind every bush. No, I'm not. We'll all be much more comfortable saying, how is the grace of God being displayed? It culminates in Christ. He's the greatest revelation of that grace. But God is showing His nature all along the way. And that way we don't have to kind of twist and come up with imaginative interpretations. That may sound good, but we cannot prove. And that makes people doubt our preaching if we cannot prove it, right? It may be very clever, you know, but if we cannot prove it, um, I, I wouldn't go there. Uh, question, does Christ-centered preaching automatically assume expository preaching? 
Uh, maybe you could talk about what expository preaching is if that's not a term familiar to everyone. Or is there a place for topical narratival forms of preaching? And we could expand that out to teaching as well, I think, in this context here. How do we? So expository preaching, kind of a most basic definition, is trying to say what a text means in its original context. So I'm looking at a text, I'm looking at the use of history and grammar, and I'm saying, what does this text mean, and what can I prove to you this text means? And now, sometimes that is looked at, people go, oh no, this is just going to be a data dump, right? Here's going to be, somebody's going to dump a commentary on me and call it a sermon, right? And so we just kind of give all the Greek and Hebrew and we call that a sermon. And I said, well, no, that, that's not what we mean. Um, the, the old language of preachers is we, we are obligated to show the fruit of our labor, not the sweat of our labor, right? So, you know, telling people, now the Hebrew word means, and this is in the aorist. Kind of, why am I telling people that? They're not, this means nothing to them, right? But to tell people, when, when Paul talks about this, he's talking about something that's entirely finished. God, Hebrew, or writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 14, God has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Well, that doesn't make sense. God has made perfect those who are being sanctified. It makes perfect gospel sense. God has made perfect forever those covered by the blood of Christ, those who robed He has made already perfect those in this life who are still being sanctified. But I need to know the first is a completed action. It's totally done. God has made perfect forever those who are still being made more perfect in this life because that is the gospel. He's already sanctified us, but He's still making us more like Christ. But the language can help me explain that to people. But if all I'm doing is I'm just kind of dumping my commentary on people, that's really not expository preaching. That's just showing your diploma. <laughs> and that's really not helpful. I think we're saying, how can I show you what this means in such a way that you can see the significance of it in your life? So I have to be able to prove what it says and then show the significance of it for your life. Expository preaching is not just a data dump. It's, it's sound explanation of a text in its context and showing its significance to God's people. So, uh, do all sermons have to be that? No. You know, I, I had the privilege, that teenage daughter I told you about is now in her mid-twenties, and I had the privilege of, of uh, doing her wedding a couple of weeks ago. And I did not do an expository sermon. <laughs> I did a topical sermon, you know. And, you know, uh, there's a verse in Isaiah, you know, that, that, that simply said that God's love for us is as a bridegroom for his bride. They got it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I had to explain every Hebrew word. There are different occasions. There are different situations. There are different aspects of the life of the church. I think the bread and butter, the, the kind of meat and potatoes of solid ministry is telling people, this is what the Word of God says. Let me make sure I'm showing you. And we show it in its context. And I think when that's kind of the meat and potatoes, the most regular serving, that the church is most healthy. But um, even I did not want to an expository sermon at my daughter's wedding. That would not have been wise. <laughs> um, so I, we make prudential choices. But God's people are most helped when they see how the Word of God is making 
His truth known to His people. Um, I have a pair of questions here that uh, are asking, uh, are there passages in general that you found particularly difficult to connect to Christ? Uh, and then more specifically, is there a particular text uh, that you yeah. have struggled? Well, uh, of course. Uh, I will tell you what, what often happens at a conference like this is the most common question is, you know, this sounds so nice and it sounds so lovely and it sounds so beautiful and sweet and kind, but how do you deal with the hard text in the Bible? where um, God is warning His people that if they do not follow Him, there will be terrible consequences. I mean, you kind of say, where's the grace in that? And I always want to say, listen, if God did not love you, He would not warn you. A warning is gracious. If God, if God simply wanted you to go to destruction and have no help... so. If, if, if the way that we preach the warnings is almost as we delight that God is going to hurt people, well, you know, that's not going to help anybody. But if we say God loves you so much that He warns you of the consequences of sin, then the fatherly nature of God is displaying His grace in a severe mercy. After all, what, do we, what does the Bible say? God disciplines those that He loves. And no discipline seems pleasant in the moment, but it produces a harvest of peace and righteousness. So we have to say, are there hard texts in the Bible? Oh, yes, believe me, there are hard texts in the Bible. There are, there are warnings. There are consequences. There are ways in which God is turning us to repentance, but ultimately recognize it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's, it's not just, you know, it's not the ogre in the sky that gets obedience, right? Because if the only reason you're obeying the ogre in the sky is so he won't hurt you, you may obey him, but you cannot love him. And that was the first commandment, right? So if the only reason you're obeying is so that he won't hurt you, you may obey the command, but you cannot obey the fundamental command, Right? You have to understand the love of God or it drives every other command into disobedience, even if you do it, because you're doing it out of wrong motive. I guess expository preaching doesn't let us uh, preachers and teachers run away from those hard texts. <laughs> no, so. but it teaches us why they're there, mm -hmm. because they are still for the good of God's people so that they may experience the fullness of His love toward them. Excellent. Well, let me just, could we just thank Dr. Jabal for investing in our city tonight? <laughs> let me do this. Let me just pray for you as you go. I know this is the same room of people probably at all of our churches across the city that's going to be setting up and teaching Sunday school and leading worship and all that stuff. So let me just pray for us as we go. Oh, Lord, we, we pray. We pray for hearts that would be eager to receive the teaching of your word tonight. And we pray, God, for, for every single man and woman in this room, God, as we, as we go out and head into the weekend preparing to teach classes or groups or, or teach from pulpits or lead songs, Lord, may we do it with the love of God in Christ on the forefront of our minds. May we, this weekend, by the mercies of God, 
offer our bodies, offer our lives, offer our classes, offer our families as worship unto you, Lord. I pray for your grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our brothers and sisters, grace to you this weekend. Uh, please do us a favor and help us just on your way out, clear the trash out, and uh, grace to you as you minister this week.